Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. You know, in years past, we uh, would often do a special New Year's message, a message that would kind of help start the New Year out in the right foot, you know, and just kind of get us thinking along certain lines that would benefit us in the uh, new year that we are have entered into. And uh, I thought about that, but honestly, as I thought a little bit more about it, you know, we're in a section in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 7, and this morning we're going to be covering verses 7 through 11. Now, this section deals with prayer. And, in fact, it deals with persevering prayer. That's actually the title of the message. And I can't think of a better way to start the new year than with a message about prayer, which hopefully will renew our commitment to pray in this new year that God has placed us in. So let's read Matthew 7, starting at verse 7, where Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now the question is, why did Jesus put this here? All right. I mean, why does he insert these verses on prayer here? I mean, the Lord has already taught on prayer in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And so then why in the middle of a chapter that deals with judgment does he start talking about prayer? Now, a lot of commentators have a problem with that, and they can't see any reason for it. So they have come up with a theory that chapter 7 is just simply a kind of a hodgepodge of disconnected uh, thoughts uh, on a variety of subjects that really don't fit anywhere, but Jesus kind of tossed them all in here at the end of the sermon to kind of wrap things up and just, you know, fire out a few things on different topics. And But that was it, just to kind of bring it all to a close. They really don't belong anywhere. It's really no context, really just kind of a hodgepodge of unrelated thoughts just to kind of end the sermon. Well, uh, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. Chapter 7 has a definite theme that Jesus Christ is teaching on, and that theme is judgment. And everything he says relates back to and comes from that theme. In fact, what he is saying right here in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, uh, is actually built on what he's just gotten done teaching in verses 1 through 6. Let's read those again. Where Jesus said, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the the plank, or as we have said before, the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a log is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank or the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, if you're wondering what that verse 6 is all about, get the CD from the last time we were in Matthew 7. But it all relates to the subject of judgment. 
And the idea that Jesus is trying to, well, first of all, he's, he's admonishing us to make sure in these first six verses, when we go to somebody to help them remove the speck from their eye, which is a flaw, maybe um, an area of weakness that they keep stumbling in or, uh, or some sin that they're really not serious about dealing with, you know, uh, God will lead us to do that at times and to pray before we do that, of course. But it takes discernment to know when are we to go to that person and stop praying and actually confront in a spirit of love. You know, um, who do we just pray for because they're young in the Lord and they just need time to grow? We don't really need to, to go to them. and Just we need to pray for them and just encourage them. So, you know, really, how do we know who to confront and when? How do we know when our own heart is right? When I approach someone about the, uh, the speck in their eye. And, of course, how do I know who the hogs and dogs are? So that I don't give God's holy truth to dogs nor cast his precious pearls before swine. Well, the answer is you come to God in prayer and you ask and you seek and you knock. Because only God has the wisdom and the insight that will direct us in these matters. Only God knows the motives of the heart. And we need to check our motives before we go to anybody to try to correct them. Is my life right? I mean, I'm not perfect. None of us. Jesus is not saying you have to be perfect before you can go to anybody else and correct them. He's just saying, make sure you're not playing the hypocrite. Make sure that you're serious about your flaws and your weakness, weaknesses and so on. Make sure that your motives are right, that, you're, that you honestly want to see your brother or sister be all they can be for the Lord. And you're not just going to them out of a spirit of pride and Phariseeism, which says, well, you know, I mean, here you are stumbling and falling over this sin because you're weak, but you need to look at my life and how strong I am. Boy, I do all these things for the Lord. And, you know, like the Pharisees always pointed out. This was all in the context of Jesus saying to his disciples, here's how the Pharisees live. Here's how they do it. Here's how they conduct their spirituality. It's a show for everyone to see. Don't be like them. Don't confront others in a spirit of pride and Phariseeism. Check your own heart. Make sure it's right before you go to them. A speck is a foreign object in a person's eye. It should be removed. But make sure that your heart is right when you go to that person and help them to remove that speck in their eye. And this whole process takes a lot of discernment and uh, a lot of prayer. There is no foolproof formula or checklist that allows us, that God has given to us, I should say, when dealing with these issues that Jesus raised in verses 1 to 6. But what he has told us to do is pray. And to pray repeatedly and fervently, which is what the Greek is saying, and we'll get to that in a moment. If we lack wisdom in any area of our lives, we need to go to God in prayer. James says that, right? James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But then he adds in chapter 5, verse 16, the earnest prayers of righteous people, God's people, have great power and produce wonderful results. So we need to come to God for wisdom in all areas of our lives. And we need to pray fervently, that God would give us the grace to, to do all he has called us to do and be all he's called us to be. We need to have that, uh, that heart of dependence on God and fervency, that we really are serious about being what God wants us to be. Now, the reason God didn't give us a bunch of checklists in the Bible is because he wants a relationship with us. Very important point. And because of it, he only gives us the principles. And then he expects us to apply them into our lives and into our dealings with others on an individual basis through prayer. For example, we read in the New Testament things like, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. 
we read how that women are commanded to dress modestly. Men are commanded to uh, love their wives as Christ loved the church. All of these are principles, uh, commands, I should say, based on principles, but they give us no specifics, do they? They give us no specifics. They're just principles that God has given to us to apply into our lives. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to this whole idea of judging what's right and wrong for us to do as Christians, right? Uh, When it comes to how we live our lives for the Lord, there's a lot of gray areas. God gives us principles, but they're not specific. They lack the specifics. And that opens the door for a lot of debate, a lot of speculation. I mean, be holy. That hasn't confused anybody, right? The whole church functions on the same page with that command, right? Obviously not. I mean, have you ever been a little frustrated because you wish God had been a little more specific in his word about certain issues? I mean, did you ever find yourself wishing that there weren't so many gray areas in the Bible? And that things were a little more, you know, black and white. In other words, when God says, women dress modestly. And here's what I I mean by that, okay? Uh, No dresses below the knee, or excuse me, above the knee. Or if they are above the knee, you know, one inch is the max, you know? You can only wear so much makeup, okay? A little eye makeup, no lipstick. I mean, that would be specifics, right? Or, guys, love your wives. And here's how you need to do it. Once a week, take the gals out for a nice dinner. you got to spend at least half hour a day just listening to them and all that they want to say with the TV off. Every three months, flowers, maybe candy every four or five months. That would be specific, right? Would leave no room for gray areas. Don't even be started about holy living. I mean, because, you know, that would go on for, for pages and pages in the Bible. You know, be holy. And what does that mean, Lord? Well, you know, and we have a lot of groups out there that have their own little checklist, don't they? And they get quite long, depending on the group. On the one hand, it would sure cut down on all the arguments and debates in the church, wouldn't it? But the Lord has purposely engineered his word to give us just enough truth, listen, to make us responsible and just enough mystery or gray areas to keep us dependent on him for guidance and wisdom and applying those principles into our lives that he has given to us. And so when dealing with spiritual or practical issues, we are drawn to the word of God for the principle, which we follow until we run out of road, quote unquote. When the word doesn't give us any more to go on, and then we are driven to our knees to pray and ask God for wisdom and guidance. You see, the principle sends us down the right road, doesn't it? But it never takes us all the way to the destination or to the decision point. We start down the right road through God's principles. And when the road ends, when the principle comes to an end, we can't extract any more from it. We need more specific guidance. Now we pray, we seek God for that wisdom and guidance. What that does is it keeps us dependent on God and our relationship with him strong and vibrant. I mean, think about the wisdom of God in doing it this way. If God gave to us his word and it had all the answers we would ever need for every person we would ever deal with, every situation we'd ever come across in life, the Bible would be literally hundreds of volumes long. Forget about pocket New Testaments, gang. The Bible would literally, literally be hundreds, if not thousands of volumes long. In fact, most people wouldn't even bother reading it. It would overwhelm them by the sheer magnitude of it. And they would say, you know what, I can't even begin to get into that set of books, okay? Uh, I'm going to let the scholars just read them and tell me what it says. Or even if a person was inclined to try to read through it once in their life, it could 
maybe barely do it. And then you can never remember all the specifics, could you? I mean, have you ever walked into a law office? or I've never been to a law school. But I would imagine they have literally hundreds, if not thousands of volumes on case law in the library that deal with every law and every way that law was interpreted and applied. I mean, it would be so massive. You know, it's hard enough for us to memorize a principle, right? Then to memorize the thousand or more applications of that principle. It's, it's, it would be incredibly uh, cumbersome. And if God did give us, we'll say, his word like a um, library of, of many uh, volumes of law, all you'd have to do if you had a problem was find the place in one of the volumes where that specific uh, area was dealt with and just apply it. You wouldn't have to go to God. It would make prayer obsolete. It would damage our relationship with him because we wouldn't be dependent on him anymore. We would just go to the volume wherever it was, find whatever area of what we're dealing with, read it, and apply that into our lives. Our relationship with God would suffer greatly because of it. Look, there is power in prayer, but the power doesn't lie in the prayer itself. We've talked about this. The power lies in the relationship it causes you to develop with the Lord. And I'm convinced that's exactly what God wanted. He gave us just enough truth to make us responsible, but not enough to make us independent from him. Because the real power of prayer is spending time in his presence, soaking in his fellowship. And as we do, we are given the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ will guide us. The Spirit of God living inside of us will guide us in the specifics of our lives. You know, author Roy Hessian, in his book, We Would See Jesus, said this, and I quote, he said, My goal is God himself, not joy, nor peace, nor even blessing, but himself, my God, end quote. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution, folks, let me suggest that one right there. Make your Christianity not about getting from God, or make it a utilitarian approach to life where God is there to just give me all the little tools I need to do all the things I need to do. Look at your devotional life, your time in the Word, your time in prayer. Look at it as a way to know Him. That should be the goal. Now, in looking at our passage this morning, we can see that it breaks down to two main parts, the principle and the promise. The principle is found in verses 7 and 8, where again Jesus said to his disciples, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. As we've already mentioned, we studied chapter 6. The literal Greek here is ask, please ask, and keep on asking. Seek, please seek, and keep on seeking. And knock, please knock, keep on knocking. It's fervent in the Greek, and it's a repetition, or it's a continual thing. You say, well, this sounds like God is playing games with us. I mean, if he wants to help us, why do we have to keep asking and seeking and knocking? I mean, come on. It sounds like he's almost playing games with us. Well, one author said this, and I think I've quoted you this before. But let me read it again. He said, this is not the taunt of an indifferent God playing hard to get, treating us like puppies, trying to teach us to beg. And if we stand up on our little hind legs and yap loud enough, he'll drop a biscuit in our mouth. No, this is the heart of a loving father exhorting us, even pleading with us to stay in constant communion with him because he loves us so much, end quote. And I think that really captures the heart of what Jesus is saying. 
Prayer is not something that we do once in a while, once a week on Sunday maybe, or uh, once a year at a retreat. It's something that we do every day, something we start our day with by saying, Lord, today I need your strength, I need your guidance, I can do nothing apart from you through Christ, I can do all things. I want the mind of my Savior, I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I lay myself on the altar of sacrifice, and like Isaiah, I said, I say, here am I. Send me, Lord, into the work you've called for me to do today. But I am totally dependent on you, Lord. So this is, this is what Jesus meant when he said, abide in me. And what Paul referenced when he said, pray without ceasing. It's live in an atmosphere of God's presence. Wherever you go and everything you do, you're thinking about the Lord. I mean... He's always there, right? There are some things, you know, you have to really focus on what you're doing. Maybe you work at a job where it's kind of dangerous. You need to focus. But he's always right there, though. He's never far from your thoughts. And, and all throughout the day, you're, you're constantly going back to the Word. You're constantly bringing God into decisions. You're constantly praying for strength. Uh, you're out at the store getting something. And, uh, and the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, That person right there needs to know about me. And you're sensitive to what the Spirit wants you to do. Now, does that mean because we pray out without ceasing, God always answers us the way we want? No. As one author went on to say, he said, and I quote, As we pray, God will either answer our prayers with a yes, a no, or a not now. If he answers yes, make sure you thank him and don't let it come between you and him. If he says no, be mature enough to accept it and say, Not my will, but yours be done. And if he doesn't answer, he may be saying, Yes, but not right now. So keep on asking and seeking and knocking, end quote. And another author said this. He said, persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, because then Jesus would have taught us to pray, not my will, Father, but your will be done. So prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, but to get ourselves in a place where he can trust us with the answer. I think that that's very true. So that was the principle, verses 7 and 8. Let's look at the promise, verses 9 to 11. Jesus said, Or what man is there among you who, if the son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is an example of what the rabbis called a qual Homer argument, or as some have called it in a different circle, an a fortiori argument, which is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The lesser argument is this. If earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, and Jesus said, what father among you whose son asks for bread will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish will give him a serpent? Okay. If you earthly fathers who are basically evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids when they ask you. The greater argument then is, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Now, folks, don't misunderstand. This is not a blanket promise to all humanity. There are some that take it this way. And they feel like Jesus is writing, uh, giving us a blank check almost. And saying, you know what? We're all the family of God. Well, no, that's not true. We're all the creation of God. But the universal brotherhood of man, universal fatherhood of God is not a biblical teaching. We are all the creation of God, but we don't become family until we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts and lives as our Lord and Savior. That's when we become children of God. And that's when the promises of God apply to us. 
These were not given to the multitudes. They were not given to the masses at large. These were given to Jesus' disciples, these promises. But God's word is full of promises to his people. That he hears their prayers and will answer them, listen, in one way or another. I mean, this is a promise that when we pray, God is always going to give us what we ask or give us something better. So when we ask God for something, if he gives it to you, great, praise the Lord. If he doesn't give it to you, understand that he is saying, look, I know what you're saying. I know what you're asking, but you know what? I'm not going to give you that. I got something much better for you. I've got something much better. You've got to trust me that my plans for you are perfect. I love Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 through 13, where, where God's speaking to Jeremiah says, look, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God is saying, look, you pray because that's what I've commanded you to do. But trust me that if I don't do things the way you want, trust me that I have a better plan for your life. I mean, I'm not an evil God. I'm not out to hurt you. Your circumstances might indicate at times that I don't care about you, that I'm not really in love with you, that, that I just take pleasure. Some people think God takes pleasure in, in, in making my life miserable. That's not true. Maybe you're in sin and he's trying to make you miserable to bring you to him and get you, get you right with him, that he can bless you again. But God says, look, I'm going to lead your life in the right path, not always the easiest path. But I have a plan for your life. And when you go through difficult times, you have to trust that I have a plan, that I'm a good God who loves you. Why? Because I've told you that. And I've shown you on Calvary's cross that while you were yet sinners, my son died for you because I love you. You know, some people think that God doesn't hear. I'm talking about Christians now. They think that God doesn't hear and answer their prayers. Look, God always hears the prayers of the righteous. It's just that sometimes God says no. And you know what? We just don't like to take no for an answer, do we? Again, one author said, I think, I think it was McGee. <laughs> I love McGee. He's just real down to earth. He said, many Christians have never grown out of early childhood, but kick and scream and say to God, you don't love me, when God says no to them like two-year-olds, end quote. It's true, isn't it? You know, we have to grow up and, and be mature enough spiritually that when God says no, we don't throw ourselves on the ground like a two-year-old, kick and scream, and just make all these outrageous accusations against God like he doesn't care, he's not a good God, you don't love me. Why? Because he won't give you what you want. What he wants to give you is much better. And maybe, by the way, what you're asking for, although you think it's the right way to go right now, God sees down the road and goes, man, that's going to be a total disaster. I'm so thankful God didn't give me a lot of things I prayed for years ago. Because as I've seen my life progress, I've seen that those things would have been terrible if God had given me those things. It's clear from Scripture that God always answers our prayers in some manner, as we just, just have said. But there are some guidelines for effective prayer. Now look, there are certain practices and attitudes that can hinder your prayers. And in those cases, God is not going to answer or respond. So I think we need to take the rest of our time this morning to briefly just touch on what those can be. God answers prayer, not always the way we want, but he does. he's promised to answer our prayers with a yes a no, a no is, a, is an answer. Or silence, which says, you know what, maybe, but not right now, keep praying. But there are times when our prayers are hindered. Things that will kind of come between us and God, 
and um, not allow God to really answer the way he would want. Let's look at those. I'd like just to take a few moments to look at the scriptures that would help us to understand what things would hinder us in our prayers that God won't really listen and answer them the way he would like. I'll just give you these quickly. We won't spend a lot of time on them. They're pretty self-explanatory. I will give you scriptures for each one. Just write them down. We won't have time to turn to them. The first thing that will hinder our prayers is harboring unconfessed sin that will put a barrier then between you and God. Psalm 66, verse 18. The psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. And of course, you all remember Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, which God said because you know God, Israel was praying, but God wasn't responding. And they were accusing God of being unfaithful, that he was not answering their prayers as he had promised. And the Lord comes back and says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear your prayers. Unconfessed sin. We need to deal with that. Number two, God hears the prayers of those who obey his commands. Now, folks, this doesn't mean that we have to be perfect again. It doesn't. It just means that we have to have a sincere heart. We're all going to blow it at times. And God is not looking, is not coming against weakness. He's coming against rebellion is the idea. First John 3.22, John says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Some Christians are like, why isn't God answering my prayers? Well, how are you living? You know, and as you probe a little bit, my goodness, why do you think God is going to bless you, lead you, when you're living in open sin like you are? Get your life right with God. He's not looking for perfection, but he's looking for humility and honesty and sincerity. Okay. Number three, God will not hear prayers that have wrong or selfish motives. For this, I turn to James 4, verse 3. Where James says, you ask, you know, when you pray, you ask and do not receive from God because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And simply what this is saying is, look, and, and by the way, folks, if you pray for a need, a necessity, that's not selfish. Some people say, I don't pray for myself. I only pray for others. Well, that may sound kind of noble, but it's kind of dumb. I pray for myself. All the, I'm right at the top of my prayer list. Why? I need it. All right. I need it, you know. But the idea is, look, it's not wrong to pray for your needs. If you have need the rent or the mortgage payment or a car payment or food or gas or something like that, and you come to God, it's not selfish. I'm not saying God's not going to answer those prayers. He will. Jesus told us that we are to pray for those necessities. It's the other things that we come to God looking for, things that will only encourage more selfishness. Things for me, I want to lay up my, for myself a kingdom on the earth, right? Because I want to have a lot of money. I want to have power. Well, God's not going to bless that stuff. He wants you to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, not on the earth. So God will not hear prayers that have wrong or selfish motives attached to them. Number four, we are instructed to pray according to his will, not according to ours. You say, well, how do I know what his will is? Get in the word. I mean, you get a lot of it right there, okay? Again, the specifics. That comes later as you seek God for his personal will for your own life. Let's start with the basics, though. Things that God has told all of his kids to do that are his will. We've done studies on this before. Come up afterwards if you'd like to know what they are, and I'll direct you to them. 
But we are instructed to pray according to his will, not according to ours. First John, classic passage, 1 John 5, 14 and 15, where John says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, this is exactly what Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, only he said it in a slightly different way. He said, look, as of now, you have asked nothing in my name. But when I go back to the Father, if you ask for whatever you need in my name, you will have it. The Father will give it to you. That was a guarantee. Well, you know, again, people say, well, we, Jesus told us that we could ask whatever we wanted uh, as Christians and God will give it to us. I'm going to ask for my new Cadillac this year and I'm going to ask that God give me that new house I've been looking at, you know, that 8,000 square foot place in Barrington. Because I can ask. Jesus said, whatever you ask, right? What did he say? Whatever you ask, what? In my name. Which simply means things that are consistent with Jesus' character. Things that he would have asked for if he were still on the earth and prayed to the Father. These are always things that glorify God, not us. These are always things that we need for the work of the kingdom, not for building our kingdom on the earth, the kingdom of God. That whole context the night before Jesus went to the cross, as he told his disciples, I'm going away soon, and where I'm going, you can't come with me, you can't follow me, not yet. I'll come back for you someday. But until that time, I'm going to go back to the Father, pray the Father, he will send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. He says, and then you're going to go out into all the world. And you're going to be the witnesses I have made you to be. And whatever you have need for the work that I'm sending you out to do, you ask the Father in my name. He'll make sure that you get everything you need to finish the work I began that I'm now turning over to you. That's the promise. It's not carte blanche. Whatever you want, you know, send it up onto heaven, slap Jesus' name on it. You know, in Jesus' name, like a stamp on an envelope, fired up to heaven, and God's going to respond. This is not Santa Claus stuff. I mean, you know, this is, again, people that think this way think like children. Children write those little letters to Santa Claus around uh, Christmas time, asking him for all kinds of things, things that they want for themselves, right? Mature Christians pray for things that relate to the kingdom. Not that we can't pray for ourselves. Not that we can't pray that God provide our needs. Uh, or uh, lead us to the right person to marry, or the right ministry to be involved in, or even where to live. But it's all God's glory that's the focus. Number five, and this piggybacks on to number four, when we pray we are to ask in faith, because unbelief is, a, unbelief is a barrier to answered prayer. But listen, faith, when I say ask in faith, I'm saying faith in the promises of God, not in our own personal wish list. That goes back to First John five fourteen and 15. Whatever we ask, in his, according to his will, he hears us and will give to us. The idea is that if God has promised us things in his word, now what does he promise us? He's promised a lot of stuff. But practically, he's promised us, chapter 6 of Matthew, he's promised to make sure we have food, water, shelter, clothing, everything we need to survive. Those are God's promises. Of course, there are many others. So when God promises us something, you don't know, take it to the bank, guys. When you pray about it, you don't have to say, well, God, will you please give us rent for this month? Ask the Father, Lord, you promised to provide this. You're my Father. I come to you now with all assurance you're going to take care of this need. And he will. We are to pray in faith for what he has promised. Now, there are some things he hasn't promised that are not bad things. 
I've told you before, there, when we first got into ministry, we were living by faith day to day. We had no money, and we had little children. I remember, as I've said, shared with you before, about how we came into one Christmas season, and we had nothing to give the kids for Christmas. And so I just prayed, Lord, I mean, you, you've not promised to give my kids gifts for Christmas. I mean, you give us everything we need to live, and I thank you for that. But, Lord, you haven't promised to give us the luxury of gifts and things for the kids. Now, I ask that you would be gracious and provide a little extra so we can have something for the kids. But I knew it wasn't his uh, a promise, but I prayed just asking the Father for grace. And don't you know, he always comes through. I mean, he came through and we had a wonderful Christmas, as, as he often does. When we pray for things that are not wrong, not selfish, just not promised in his word, I can't pray in faith in the sense that I, I, I can claim that promise. I can pray in faith that I serve a God who loves me and is gracious and merciful and often gives to us things that we don't even deserve, but because he loves us, shows us that love by giving us things. So we need to pray in faith when it comes to the promises he has given us. And for this, I like Mark 11, verses 22 to 24. It says, where Jesus answered and said to them, his disciples, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. But again, the whole thing is prefaced with, with the command, not have faith in your faith, have faith in God. And in his word is the idea. And if you're asking for something that deals with the kingdom, you pray in faith and God will make sure you get that thing. Number six, an ongoing abiding life in Christ, which means having regular fellowship with him, is absolutely essential to having our prayers heard and answered. Because when fellowship with God is broken, so is communication with God. John 15, verse 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me, speaking to his disciples, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 7. Sometimes, and this is number seven on our list, sometimes we don't have answered prayers because we do not ask at all. Okay? That's amazing to me. Uh, James 4.2. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. I'm amazed at how many Christians go without because they don't just take the time to pray. Why don't they take the time to pray? I think a lot of times they just don't feel like it's going to matter. So there's no faith. I think sometimes they feel, well, why, why would God answer me? As if their worthiness was essential for God to answer their prayers. Look, we just need to come to him with a spirit of humility and ask him for the things that we need. Sometimes the things that we want but we're not guaranteed he's going to give. You don't ask, you don't receive. Number eight, sometimes we don't receive an answer to our prayers even when we do ask. And ask with the right motives because we don't persevere in prayer. Luke 11 verse 9 Jesus said, so I uh, say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And again, it's keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Also along the lines of persistence in prayer, which is a key to answered prayer, I'll let you read Daniel 10 this week, how that Daniel was seeking God for a very important answer. And he prayed and fasted for 21 days before the answer came. When the answer came, we read... The reason it took 21 days is because on the first day Daniel set himself to praying, 
uh, his answer was dispatched in the form of an angel. But the devil and his demons held up the messenger of God in the heavenly realm. And so this war broke out. And finally, Michael and some of the other chief angels helped this angel courier to break through enemy lines that come to Daniel with his answer. Wow. I mean, when you think about that, all right, you know, here you're dealing by your bed praying, right? And you're praying, you know, and a couple days goes by, and you just hang in there, you pray some more. You're oblivious of what's going on. I mean, there's like a Star Wars battle going on, lightsabers flashing, you know, sparks flying. And, 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 and you're totally oblivious to this. Now, if Daniel would have quit sometime before 21 days, would he have gotten his answer? I don't think so. If we don't persevere in prayer, well, I'm wondering how many answers we would have gotten if we hung in there. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Number nine, give you two more. If you're unable to forgive somebody for something that person has done to you, listen, and God says that is going to greatly hinder your relationship with God and his ability or his desire to then answer your prayers. I mean, if you're holding something against somebody else, when God has forgiven us for so much, and we hold something against another brother or sister that has wronged us in some way, it severs our fellowship with God and our communication with God, and he will not answer our prayers until we get that right. For that, I'll have, you, I'll have you write down Mark 11, verse 25. Jesus said, Whatever you, whenever you stand praying, he's talking about in the temple there, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. In other words, and then the way of communication is restored, and God will now begin to hear your prayers in the sense that he will now answer your prayers. Very important point. Number 10. We are to pray with a thankful heart. This is one that flies under the radar oftentimes. We are to pray with a thankful heart. Those who come to God without a spirit of thankfulness sometimes find their, their prayers are hindered. Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, listen, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, then the peace of God will come. Then the answers to prayer will come. Sometimes we take God for granted. And sometimes he withholds his answers that we're not taking for granted anymore, you know. And this is something he does because he loves us and doesn't want us to just begin to barge into his office, we'll say, throw your request on his desk and march out of there without really spending time with him or thanking him for the things he has done in your life. And I'll give you one more. This is only for the guys, girls, okay. We need a little extra help. But guys, your prayers will be hindered if you're not treating your wives properly. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Treat your wives properly. Peter says, make them your primary ministry. Know how they tick. A woman is different from a man. We have to study our wives to find out what blesses them, how we can make them feel secure, uh, make them feel cherished. If we don't, if we ignore them, if we abuse them, even verbally or sometimes by just never acknowledging the good things they do, I think that's kind of an abusive thing. Well, God says, look, your prayers are going to be hindered. Let me end this morning with one quote that hopefully will catapult us into this new year. A year that I hope will see a renewed commitment in all of our lives toward prayer. In fact, it's been our prayer just in the prayer meeting this morning that God would make our church in 2012 a house of prayer, just as Jesus said should be. 
But one author said this, and I quote, and we'll end with this. He said, prayer is the Christian's greatest resource and the one least used. It is his greatest obligation and the one most neglected. It is the most common form of devotion, yet the one least understood. Prayer is the gateway to God's presence, but few enter. Prayer is the channel of God's grace, but in most lives it is clogged. It is commonly supposed that anyone can pray, but only those who have accepted Christ into their hearts have full access to God. Many regard prayer as optional, but God requires prayer as the condition of his working. And where there is no prayer, folks, there is no power. End quote. So you want God to work in your life this year? You want God to make you more than you are for Christ right now? You want him to bless your marriage, heal your marriage, save your wayward child, save your unsaved husband, whatever it might be, get on your knees. And let's make this a year by God's grace. I'm not saying that we'll just do it by trying real hard. Prayer is a gift of grace, I'm convinced. Consistent, spirit-filled prayer is something we have to be dependent on God to work through us. Jesus had no problem praying. He prayed constantly. He got up every morning before the breaking of day to spend time with his Father. He lives in us. Paul says, my prayer is that Jesus would live his life through me. That the life I now live would not be my energy, but his power living through me by faith. May God give us that grace. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for, for prayer and, and how simple it is and yet how simply profound it is. Father, we just pray that you would pour upon our lives a spirit of prayer and intercession. That, Lord, you would work in us. That we would, Lord, not feel obligated to pray, but obsessed with prayer, in a sense. That, Lord, it's all that we can think of is spending time in your presence. Because we love you, want to know you more, but we are a burden for souls. Our families that don't know you. Burdened to be all you want us to be. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would make our lives the temples of our hearts, a house of prayer. That you would make our church, Lord, a house of prayer. That we would see you do exceedingly, abundantly, in and through us this year, above all that we could ask or think. All because we have taken the time to pray. Thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.